All right, everybody. Well, if you have your Bible, please turn with me to Revelation chapter 12. We have been, again, we're, we're sort of doing an end times view uh, when it comes to systematic theology. What does the Bible teach about the last things or the end times? And one of the ways we're trying to explain that subject as best we can is to use Revelation, which is a pretty obvious place to go, especially after we went through Daniel last, uh, this, this past few months. And so these three weeks, last week, this week, and next week, we're doing chapters 11, 12, and 13 as sort of give a sampling of how the book works and how, we, how to interpret some of these difficult passages. And then we will uh, we'll be in other parts of Revelation after that, talking about final judgment, uh, hell, new creation, new heavens, new earth, uh, and all, eventually the millennium. That's reserved for the very end of the summer. Yeah. So the very end of the summer, we'll deal with the thousand-year reign of Christ, which is obviously uh, a big controversy for, for, for Christians throughout history. But um, Greg, could you open us in prayer? And then we'll, we'll, I think we'll just take a chapter 12 in pieces as we work through it uh, yeah. today. Let's do that. Oh. I, don't, I don't think I'm on. Am I on? No? Can you hear me? Okay, good. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for another opportunity to study your word, especially this amazing book at the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And I pray, Lord, that you will uh, be with Mark and myself as we, Lord, do our best to make sense of chapter 12. Um, Lord, we just pray for your help. We pray for clarity. Uh, We pray for conviction. We pray for humility uh, and grace in all that we say. Lord, and we pray that we would all be able to better understand your word and uh, the hope that we have in Christ and the strength that you have available for us to persevere uh, through all that we face in this world. And so, Lord, I pray that we'd leave this morning better equipped to persevere in faith and make Jesus known and endure whatever comes because we know that ultimately we conquer through our Lord and his work for us. And we are so grateful for that. And we just commit our hearts and minds in this whole time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Greg, could you read the first six verses? Yeah, let's do it. All right, Revelation chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Okay, we would just like to walk through these verses just in a row, just one through through six, and uh, try to explain what we think they mean. Greg, could you start us with verse one? Yeah, um, a great sign, a great signal appeared in heaven. Remember, we're dealing with apocalyptic imagery, so highly symbolic, graphic even uh, in its portrayal of things. We're supposed to read these things and be somewhat shocked by what we read, especially what we see in these first six verses, the, the scene that's taking place. It should be a little bit disgusting uh, when you consider... Uh, what, what the dragon wants to do to the baby that this woman uh, is ready to give birth to. 
But here's the first sign. A great sign appeared in heaven. And also I want you to notice, as I was reading through this, especially this week, it talks about a sign appeared in heaven. A sign appeared in heaven. War rose in heaven. It's like, it's talking about stuff in heaven, but there's an interplay between heaven and earth. It's like, it's in heaven, but it's on earth, but it's in heaven. So notice, again, that's the way apocalyptic works. It doesn't always fit into our nice, neat categories of distinctions. It goes back and forth between um, different perspectives, sometimes almost at the same time, and we have to allow it to do that. Otherwise, we might get really confused. Well, let me just yeah. say something about that. So as we've argued last Sunday, we'll continue to argue, chapters 11, 12, and 13 are giving you different camera angles of basically the same reality. And it's the church age that we live in primarily is the, is the focus between Christ's resurrection and His return. And in chapter 12, we're really getting more of the angelic, demonic perspective on this church age. So we talk, it talks about Michael the angel fighting Satan and his angels, much more of a heavenly, angelic camera angle on the church age, whereas chapter 13 has the infamous beast and the mark of the beast and 666 and all that kind of stuff in chapter 13. 13 is giving you more the earthly camera angle of this same time period. 12 is showing you about Satan and what he and his minions are doing. 13 is showing you how he's using the, the governments of this world to employ his tactics, the, mm-hmm. the beast and the false prophet and the mark of the beast. These are all earthly things that are happening during the same era. So chapters 12 and 13 give you two camera angles on the same time period, which is the time period of the church age. 12 emphasizes the heavenly perspective, emphasizing Satan as the dragon. 13 emphasizes what Satan is doing through, his, through his, um, the people he's using on earth, which would be the beast and the false prophet, or the second beast out of the sea. So just keep in mind different perspectives on the same reality. Yeah, uh, great point. So thinking about this woman, it says again in verse 1, she was clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a, on her head a crown of 12 stars. Now, if you're at all familiar with the Old Testament, this should immediately take you back to Joseph in Genesis and his dream about uh, his parents eventually bowing down to him and then his brothers and all that as well. And so we, we have to, 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 again, see so much of Revelation. I think it was, I don't think we gave numbers, but I want while I'm thinking about it, there's like 400, and not, like 400 plus verses in Revelation and there's over 500 allusions to the Old Testament or quotes. Like, there's so much Old Testament imagery. Um, if, if you think Old Testament stuff when you're reading like this, wait a minute, that wasn't that, you're probably right. Like, you, you can't make sense of Revelation without the Old Testament. Did we want to turn there real quick? Well, let me just, we don't have to all turn there. I just want to read it really quickly. Yeah, go for it. With Joseph's dream, uh, when he gets up the next morning to explain his dream, he says, Then I dreamed another dream and told it to my brothers. Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Now listen to Joseph's dream. This is... Uh, Genesis 37, verse 9. Behold, the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. Does that sound familiar to Revelation 12? Sun, moon, 11 stars. Of course, Joseph and his children would, would come in as the 12th star to complete the stars. But clearly you have uh, Jacob or Israel and his wife and then his 12 sons at the 12 tribes of Israel. This is God's covenant people. And here again, we're seeing the covenant people of God in Revelation mm-hmm. 12, 1, and the Messiah is coming from where? God's covenant people. So yeah. it, the woman here is not a symbol for Mary per se. Mary is just one of the covenant people. Yeah. But the, the woman is a representative of all of God's covenant people that gave birth to the Messiah. So 12, 1 of Revelation, looking back to Joseph's dream, is saying God's covenant people bring about, God brings about the Messiah mm-hmm. through his people. Yeah, and another thing to keep in mind here, like I'm going to argue, and I, and I think 
I think this works, is it's not just Israel either, though Israel's obviously very central um, to who this, this woman is in our understanding, simply because this goes all the way back to the garden when God made that initial promise to crush the head of the serpent, uh, that, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And so in saying there's going to be the seed of the woman, obviously it's, it's not her, it's going to be her, her descendants in some way. And so it's talking about a community that was given birth to with the initiation of that promise. And so when we talk about this covenant community that brings forth the Messiah, it's everyone, Old Testament, who, who is united by their hope in, a, in the coming Messiah that God promised, okay? Yes, we know specifically Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. We know it gets very specific, the, the, the ancestry and the lineage, but it encompasses more than Israel. Um, it has to because Israel was a part of God's process of bringing that promise in Genesis 3 to reality in Christ. And just, just to yeah. add to that point, in the Old Testament, you have someone like Ruth who is not a Jew who becomes part of God's covenant people. And the same with, with uh, the prostitute in Jericho, Rahab. Rahab, uh, yeah. she, She's not a Jew, but she becomes part of the covenant people by faith. Similarly, we are called the offspring of Abraham. Galatians chapter 3, we are the true sons uh, of Abraham in Christ. How is that possible if we're not ethnically Jewish? The answer is Jesus is Israel in his person. He is true Israel. He, he embodied all that Israel was called to be and failed to be. He was perfectly the son of Abraham, the sinless son of Abraham. And we, as Gentiles, most of us, if not all of us, we're Gentiles, we are now in Christ. And if Christ is the true Israel and we are in Christ, then we are true Israel in Christ. That, that, that's a huge thing. We are sons of Abraham in the Messiah. That, that's, that's a crucial interpretive point there. Yeah, so, um, so covenant community brings forth, but how do they bring it forth? Look at verse 2. It says, she was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. Now, this is huge because we, we don't have time to go into all of this. I don't have the verses written down to show you. But there's this, from other places in the Old Testament, this idea, this theme of the messianic um, woes. What, yeah, the messianic woes, like these, these trials, these troubles that come about with the coming of the Messiah. And so this woman, the covenant community, is, is crying out. Like it, it's, the Messiah is only going to get here through great difficulty. It, it's not just going to be, oh, okay, here's the Messiah, everything's good. No, it's going to be a painful, difficult process, which leads us into verse 3, this other sign, this great red dragon. Let's look at that. It says, another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven, cast them to the earth. And here's the main point of this. <clears throat> he stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Now, I want to look at a couple of the other aspects of this dragon, but this is the point I don't want us to miss. When we talk about this is a shocking, even somewhat disgusting text, it's not that God's word is in any way disgusting, but it's what it's describing is. I mean, basically the image is of a woman in the stirrups trying to give birth and there's a dragon ready to eat the baby when it comes out. I mean, that's just abhorrent and horrible, okay? But what does that symbolize to us? It symbolizes that, that this dragon, again, tie it back to Genesis 3, God told the serpent, the, the seed of the woman is going to crush your head. 
He knows. He knew that God was promising that a male child was going to come and defeat him. And so Satan understands, this dragon understands, this is the one who's supposed to crush him. And so he's going to do everything he can to destroy it. And now we know specifically, um, you know, when Jesus was born, uh, Herod wanted to kill the child. God told Joseph in a dream, flee to Egypt. He fled. Herod comes, slaughters all the children in the region of Bethlehem. And that's kind of like the, the final climactic display of the dragon wanting to destroy this promised Messiah and Savior. But I think you can read you can read the whole Old Testament, and this might be something you want to you want to think about doing um, as just a theme to like read through it and be on the lookout for. Every time you see God's people being attacked, being tempted into sin, idolatry, you need to see the dragon behind that trying to devour them so he can devour the Messiah. And let me just yeah, jump in there. So to, to give to, to give this kind of a, a relevant. Uh, all this is relevant. Let me, let me make something particularly relevant here. Is, uh, and I'll, we'll talk about this more in coming weeks, but with the astonishing overturn of Roe v. Wade, I mean, absolutely one of the most incredible things I've seen politically happen in my lifetime. I don't know what beats it. It's just astonishing. It should bring tears. Praise God. Unbelievable that that happened. The dragon has been trying to destroy children from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. So the dragon here is perched ready to, to, to consume the baby upon birth. Like you said, that's referring to Herod trying to kill the Bethlehem babies most directly. And that, that, mm-hmm. the way he tried to eat the baby after it was born was in Bethlehem. Send Herod, Herod was his earthly minion to send the troops in to kill all the male children two and under. So Satan loves to kill little ones. You go back to Exodus chapter 1 with Shifra and Pua, the, 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 mm-hmm. the, 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 the women who were going to be there to help the women give birth in, 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 uh, in Egypt. Well, there in chapter 1... What's happening? God is making Israel fruitful. They are multiplying greatly. And Pharaoh, who is the representative of Satan on earth, he, he is almost the serpent's embodiment on earth. The Pharaoh says, I hate when multiplication is happening with my enemies. I hate when Israel is fruitful and multiplying. I'm going to do everything I can to stop this. So he tries to kill the male children. I'm sure he did kill many of the male children in the Nile River and whatnot. And Shifra and Pua are these two hero, uh, heroic women who stand up to Pharaoh at the risk of their life, easily at the risk of their life, to save these little baby boys who were born in Egypt. But today, uh, this past week, uh, Satan has, has, uh, has experienced a real political defeat as far as that goes in, in our country. The, the fact that, you know, I just saw that in Louisville, Kentucky, Greg Gilbert, who's a pastor of a church mm-hmm. there, who, a guy we like, that's where Al Mohler goes to church, and uh, Greg Gilbert's the pastor, and he said, he's, he quoted a pastoral prayer he prayed maybe a few years ago in the pulpit, and it was for the abortion clinic in Louisville, right down the street, not far from their church, and he said, Lord, would you one day close the doors of that facility? He said, well, praise God, the, the doors closed this week of that abortion mm-hmm. clinic in Louisville. It's mm-hmm. no longer open for business. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, we, we, Satan hates children. He wants, to, he wants to destroy them, wipe them out, and here you're seeing a graph depiction of him trying to destroy Jesus upon uh, his birth here on earth. You mentioned Pharaoh um, hating the children. I cannot remember the reference, but in one place, Pharaoh is actually called a dragon, like he as an enemy of God's people. So I, I don't think the imagery here is unconnected or disconnected from that. Yeah, and, and Old Testament uses the Leviathan. Do you remember the Leviathan, this, mm-hmm. this sort of like dragon-like animal that can be in the waters? That is sort of a symbolic type way of speaking of Satan himself. And behind Egypt, you have the Levi- Leviathan, whom the Lord slays in, in Isaiah. Mm-hmm. It's, not, it's, it's a symbolic picture of him slaying Satan, who's behind the nation of Egypt in their oppression, or Assyria in their oppression. Leviathan is a picture of Satan's work behind the nations of this world. And similarly, the dragon here is like Leviathan in the New Testament version. Yeah. 
Yeah, so let, let's consider a little more about this, this dragon. Remember, he's a great red dragon, red probably referring to bloodshed. He's violent. I mean, what did Jesus say about Satan? You know, he was a murderer from the beginning. He's always been seeking to end human life with the temptation of even Eve and Adam in the garden, even before they had children. He knew what God had said would happen, and that was the first thing. Did God say you're going to die if you eat that? I mean, like, he, he has been interested in death from the very beginning of, of our encounter of him in Scripture. So red, I think, here symbolizes his bloodthirst and his bloodshed. Seven heads, ten horns, seven diadems. You remember horns are a sign of power, uh, diadems a sign of, of rule, royalty of sorts. So this is, this is a dragon with power and, and authority um, that's, that is supposed to terrify us even more. You look at uh, verse 4. His tail, it says, swept down a third of the stars in heaven and cast them to the earth. Now, there's a little bit of a debate on what's going on here. And I'm, I'm kind of working through it myself like because there's, there's just, it, it's, it can, can be convincing either way. One understanding of these, this third of the stars um, is it's a reference to Satan's original rebellion against God. Um, that he, when he rebelled, he took a third of the angels with him. And so, you know, Satan and there's, you know, a third of the angels that God created are now demons. That is one very, very likely possible uh, interpretation because in, in Revelation, like we said, oftentimes John tells you what a, a, a image means and then later on you base that on what you previously learned. And we know, was it the seven stars in the first few chapters or the seven angels of the churches? But also, see, in this case, there's in the book of Daniel, the, uh, the little horn at the end, like he knocks out the host of heaven, which refers to more than just the angels. It's like he's attacking the people of God. And so is this something, is it imagery simply saying, look at how powerful this dragon is. He can knock a third of the stars to the ground. Who's going to be able to resist him? Who's going to be able to stop him in what he wants to do? If he wants to devour this child, he just knocked down a third of the stars. Who's going to stop him? And so it, it could go either way. Mark, do you lean one way or the other on that? Yeah, I, I used to say with great confidence that this is referring to the original fall of Satan and a third of the angels. Mm -hmm. I've said that from the pulpit at our church probably five different times. And now I'm starting to really question that interpretation because, uh, don't you hate that when you've said something for like six years and you're like, I don't think I was right. But uh, now I'm starting to question it. Here's the main reason I'm questioning is because you said Daniel 8 uses this phrase about the stars coming from heaven. And in the context, it seems to be referring to the persecution of God's people. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that Revelation quotes Daniel constantly or alludes to Daniel constantly makes me think Daniel 8 has to be in John's mind. And in Daniel 8, it doesn't sound like the, the, the pre, you know, the, the early fall of angels with Satan. It sounds like yeah. it's referring to the persecution of God's people under Antiochus IV Epiphanes, which makes me think I've probably been wrong about this for at least 16 years. But anyways, that's, that's an encouraging comment. But we'll, we'll, we'll continue. Let, let, let's go with verse, uh, verse 4 here. So he swept down a third of the stars from heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that she, when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child. This is obviously Jesus, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Definitely Jesus. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So here, we bypass the 30-plus years of Jesus' life. We go from his birth straight to his ascension. Obviously, John knows that we know the details of his ministry, but he jumps straight to the ascension to Jesus going to heaven. And that's significant because verse 6, as we've said before, tells us the timestamp for when this ultimately controversial period of three and a half years 
begins. So again, verse 6, Jesus has just gone to heaven. There's no indication of a time gap here, none at all. It just says the child is caught up to God, to his throne, verse 6, and the woman, this represents God's covenant people, fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now, I don't want to just talk on and on about this 1,260 days. We've talked about it a lot in the last few months, but I, I've, I've got to talk about it again because it's, it's important. This number, remember, comes from Daniel. We won't go into that right now. In Revelation, when this number is used, it's used in chapter, if you look at chapter 11, verse 3. The two witnesses prophesy for 1,260 days. It is sometimes called time, times, and half a time. Time means one year. Times, plural, means two years. Half a time means half a year, three and a half years. Sometimes it's referred to as 42 months in Revelation. Again, it's, it's a three and a half year period. Chapter 11 mentions it. Chapter 12 mentions it. Chapter 13 uh, also uh, mentions this same time period. In verse 5 of chapter 13, 42 months the beast exercises authority. I believe the, the easy part is all the references to three and a half years in Revelation refer to the same period of time. I think that's the easy part. The question is, what is it referring to? I am, inc- I mean, I'm just, I become convinced that the three and a half years begins at the ascension of Jesus, and it ends like it does in these other sections. It ends at the final return of Christ and final judgment. So it's a symbolic number describing the church age, and it's called three and a half years because Elijah's famine lasted of judgment in Israel for three and a half years, which is in chapter 11, and most importantly, Israel was persecuted right before Hanukkah for three and a half years by King Antiochus IV Epiphanes. From 167 to 164 BC, it was infamous. It's still infamous. In Jewish thinking, Hanukkah is a big deal. And uh, the Jews of Jesus' time certainly knew about it. Jesus went to a Hanukkah feast in John chapter 10, verses 22 and following. It's the Feast of Dedication. That's Hanukkah. Because everyone knew about the three and a half year persecution under King Antiochus. And I believe John is using the three and a half years as a symbol for a time of terrible persecution of God's people, but also for a time of God's protection of His true remnant, His true faithful people. And three and a half years is now used as a symbol for the entire inter-Advent era between Christ's ascension and His return. During this whole time, God's covenant people are going to be especially persecuted from the dragon and His enemies and also protected and preserved by God during this time period. We right now are in the middle or somewhere in the three-and-a-half-year period because it is the time between the ascension and the return and final judgment uh, of Christ that takes place. We are both persecuted and nourished during this time period. That's another uh, theme I want to mention briefly before we, we move on in the text is that, as Mark was saying, of God preserving His people even while His people are being persecuted. We saw that very clearly in chapter 11, um, the, the inner court, the altar, those who worship there were measured, meaning they're protected. If something's measured, it's protected. Um, but the outer court of the temple was, was given over to be trampled. Um, and, and in one sense, you've got the two witnesses who can't be touched, but then they can be touched. And, and here in Revelation chapter 12, uh, we've got this, this woman who we'll see at the end. She's nourished, she's protected, but her offspring aren't. Her offspring are the ones attacked. Her offspring are the ones that are being persecuted. And so, and it's not just um, relegated to just these two chapters. That's a theme throughout Revelation is at the same time, God is spiritually protecting his people while on the, the outside in the physical in their bodies, they are being given over to persecution, even death. And this is going to, this could be misunderstood what I'm about to do. Um, there's a logical fallacy called an appeal to authority 
And the, the fallacy is something must be true because of a, a lot of authorities believe it. So if a, if a lot of people have a PhD and they believe X, therefore X is true. That's, I'm not arguing an appeal to authority right now. I'm not saying, I'm about to show you uh, some people who believe what we believe. I'm not doing this to say, therefore, it's proven that we're right. I'm just trying to show you that we're not alone in this belief system. That's all I'm trying to tell you. If you've never heard this before, you're not going to be able to see what I'm showing you. I thought about bringing the actual stack of books, but it just looks like a nerd brag, and I just didn't want to do that. But uh, Tom Schreiner, a, a commentator, Brighton, G.K. Beale, Richard Phillips, Craig Keener, James Hamilton, Dennis Johnson, again, G.K. Beale, um, Ben Witherington, Sam Storms, and Brian Tabb. All these commentators on Revelation, that's a large stack of very credible people, uh, they all take the view that the three and a half years is a symbolic period for the entire church age. Uh, they would also interpret Revelation 11, 12, and 13 extremely similarly to how we're interpreting it now. And I could add to that list uh, Kevin DeYoung, Sinclair Ferguson, Vody Bauckham, and a whole bunch of other people take the same view, uh, same basic approach to Revelation that we are, we're giving here. In case it sounds new, we're not the only ones who, who te- teach this view. Yeah, all right, moving on to this male child, okay? She gave birth to a male child, one, is to, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God in his throne. Okay, we obviously, as Mark said, this is talking about the ascension of Jesus, and there's no time gap here, and I think the text shows this pretty clearly, okay? And this is why this matters. Like, there's an agreement that um, the woman in the wilderness happens because of the ascension, uh, the war in heaven and all that happens. Um, it's what starts, you know, the ascension starts this three and a half year period. It's just we're saying this three and a half year period is indicative of the entire church age, not a future literal three and a half years that we haven't encountered yet. Okay. And the reason why I don't think that works, one, a, a lot of other stuff that we've looked at, but two, the, 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 the language of Revelation 12 itself doesn't bear out that there's this massive gap between the ascension of Jesus and then the woman in the wilderness, and then this war in heaven. It's the ascension of Jesus triggers things. You think, and, and I'm not trying to like mm-hmm. badly reference this, but when Roe v. Wade was, was struck down, a number of states had trigger laws. The moment it was struck down, these abortion bans, restrictions immediately kicked into place. There's not a time gap. This happens, all these things happen as a result. When Jesus ascends, it kicks into gear a lot of things, and that's what we need to see here. Just yeah, before ahead. we read this passage, just real quick. So if, if you're probably somewhat familiar with what we're about to read, but it's, it's also a little foggy. Like, what is this about? We're about to hear about a war in heaven between Michael and Satan and this big war up in, up in heaven. The debate is, is this a war that happened at the original fall of Satan before Genesis 3? Is this a war that's going to happen in the future in a seven literal year period of tribulation where Satan loses a war in heaven out there in the future? Or, and I think this is, I I don't want to sound arrogant, I'm thoroughly persuaded that this war is something that already happened, but it happened when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. I think the, the, the evidence is extraordinarily strong. Satan loses his battle not here at the fall and not at the final tribulation. He loses his battle decisively when Jesus atones for our sin. That's when Satan is ultimately cast out of heaven. Remember in Colossians, if you were here a couple weeks ago, Colossians chapter 2, it says he disarmed the rulers and authorities, putting them to open shame, triumphing over them through the cross. Remember that? How did Satan get beat up and triumphed over through Jesus' death? How was that a defeat to Satan? Because Satan is an accuser. That's what Satan means, the accuser. He accuses the saints to God. He tells God about your sins, and he says you should judge them for what they've done wrong. And there's no ultimate response for our sin until the blood of Christ has been shed. Once the blood of Christ has been shed, it silences the accuser. 
the accuser can no longer have a grounds for their accusation against you because it's been taken away. Your sin has been atoned for. He took the record of debt away from you and he nailed it to the cross. Therefore, he triumphed over all principalities and powers through the cross. And so the, the moment of Satan's defeat here about to be described is the moment of Jesus' death when he lost his power to accuse us with a, with a, with a just grounding for it. Yeah, awesome stuff. Um, so, verse 6, the woman fled into the wilderness, the covenant community, where she has a place prepared by God, where she's to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war rose in heaven. Why? Because the child ascended. Mm-hmm. Um, a war rose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he, the dragon, was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And now listen to what what we hear in verse 10. John says, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now, not to come, now, because of the ascension, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God. Now, wasn't it in um, the end of chapter 11 where God's wrath came, his kingdom came, his wrath came, the dead were judged, saints were rewarded, he took his power, he began to reign, that's kingdom terminology, that's the end of chapter 11. That's why we say this is going back to the same time frame, looking at it from a slightly different angle, saying the same stuff. Because Jesus ascended and Satan was cast down, salvation has come, the power of Christ has come, it's present reality. Uh, the, this goes back to the kingdom is already and not yeah, yeah. about Sorry, to mention that. Yeah. Keep going. Um, the, the kingdom is present. The authority of Christ is present. I mean, think about it, guys. Jesus said in Matthew, Matthew 28, 18, this is the Great Commission, but I think we often miss, we get so focused on the go and make disciples, we miss everything else going on around it. What did he say? Before he says go, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's exactly what we read here in chapter, Revelation chapter 12. The authority of Christ has come. Uh, it talks about go make disciples. That's the, the testimony of Jesus that his people are testifying to. It talks about, it'll say in um, verse 17, those who keep the commandments of God. What does Jesus say we're to do with disciples? To teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. And so all of this is now breaking into this world, okay? Not in the fullness as it will be at the end of time when Jesus returns physically, but it's been inaugurated. It's been instituted in an initial way. Heaven is breaking into the present. The future age is breaking into the present. The kingdom is here now. And if that's why Paul told the Colossians, if you've been transferred from what? The domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's helpful. So look, look back at verse 9 of Revelation 12. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Now, if you hold your spot here, turn with me to John chapter 12, just for a moment. We referenced this in a previous week, but it's good to just see it for yourself. John chapter 12. This is right before Jesus is going to die on the cross. This is the week of his death, just a few days before, as he comes in for the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Look at John 12, verse 27. We're arguing here, Satan is cast out 
at the death of Christ. Does, does that get backed up by the Gospels? John 12, 27. Jesus says, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Clearly referring to his death. Look at verse 31. Now, at the death of Jesus, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Do you see that? Satan is cast out at the death of Jesus. When I am lifted up, Satan is going to be cast out, and I'm going to draw people from all nations to myself. All the peoples are going to come to me as I'm lifted up, and the ruler of this world, Satan, is cast out and judged. So I think Revelation 12 is talking about the exact same reality as John 12, that that at the moment of Jesus' death, Satan loses the decisive battle in heaven. We can go back to Revelation 12. Let me pick back up in verse 10 again, just rereading this part. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ, all authority in heaven and earth, Mm -hmm. have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God, and they have conquered Him. How? By the blood of the Lamb. This happened when Jesus died. It happened when the Lamb's blood was shed. They have conquered Him, not in the future or in the past, but at the time of Christ's death, which for us is the past. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Let let me just make a little side note here. Very, very easy to misunderstand because of how we use the English word testimony today versus how the book of Revelation uses the, the, the phrase, the testimony of Jesus. You can see it again in verse 17. Look at verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Do you see, testimony is not my personal testimony in Revelation. Now listen, I am not knocking your personal testimony. I think we should use our personal testimony regularly to encourage believers, to encourage ourselves, and to encourage non-believers to become Christians. We should share our personal testimony. But in, 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 in the book of Revelation, testimony, I don't think it ever once refers to our personal conversion story. Maybe there's an exception. But virtually every time it refers to the testimony of Jesus. It's not my testimony. It's the testimony of the gospel of Jesus. So testimony here is holding fast to testifying to Jesus. It's where we get the word martyr from. The Greek word is marturo or something. It's where we get the word martyr. uh, Someone who testifies to the gospel even at great cost to themselves. And so here, the testimony is not my personal testimony, which is a great thing. It's referring to the gospel test, proclamation of Jesus and and the gospel uh, testimony. Let's pick back up, uh, Greg, verse uh, 12. I want to say one more thing about verse 11. I know we, we, we're running oh, we're out good. of time. We're good. Um, this theme of conquering Satan. We, we've already talked about from when we briefly were examining some of the language in chapter 2 and 3. You know, he who, you know, if, if he who conquers will receive this. So conquering, overcoming is, is a big theme for God's people um, in the book of Revelation. And here especially, like this, this is one of the most significant uses of it. How do we conquer the enemy of our souls? How do we conquer the arch enemy of God himself, the opponent of everything that is good and true and beautiful? We conquer, verse 11, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And here's where it really shows itself, not loving our lives even unto death. See, we are so hardwired in our current day to think of death as a defeat. For the Christian, if we are faithful unto death, we win. We get the victory if we are faithful unto death because we know death isn't the final word. 
We know there's, you know, spiritually we go into the presence of God and we wait for the resurrection when our bodies are raised and we'll be with, with the Lord forever. Um, but I, I want to draw real quick attention to this. Look at chapter 15. It talks about not loving your lives even unto death conquering. Look at chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. Okay? We're not going to spend time in 15. I wish we had time to do it, but we don't. But look at this. I saw, uh, look, at, look at verse, start in verse 2. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also, listen to the language, those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. So they they are on the other side of death. They did not yield to the beast. They did not take his name. They did not take his number. They did not worship him. And they died in that faithfulness and they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, the song of the Lamb. And it's this this great hymn that they sang. But there is this theme of conquering, not loving our lives, even unto death, which is amazing because we have to think bigger than just this life. We, We have to think bigger than just this flesh and blood because there's life in the presence of God after death and then there's a resurrection in which our bodies are raised never to die again. That's why Jesus said, do not fear them who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell forever. We have the hope in Christ of being in the presence of God spiritually and physically forever. So you know what? If they take this body, I'm going to get a better one. And I conquer because of that. Yeah, I, I can't improve on that. I'll just say it, it, it doesn't say they, the, the ones who conquered are the ones who never offended anybody. That's not what it says. The people who conquered are those who actually were so offensive, not, not in their demeanor, not because they're jerks, but because they're saying what is true about Jesus, they're going to be demonized for that. And they're gonna co- it's going to cost them bloodshed. It's going to cost them their lives, our lives in some cases. And, and that, he's saying here, listen, in those moments, being faithful to Jesus is more important than being faithful to the world. It's, it's not a contest here between, between those two. So, so back to chapter 12, look at verse uh, 12. Therefore, so Satan is cast out of heaven… Verse 12, therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Does Satan know he's defeated? Yes. Does Satan know, I mean really know, that he will be thrown into the lake of fire uh, day and night forever and ever? He will be tormented as Revelation 20, 19 and 20 will say. Satan is absolutely sure of that. He knows he's a defeated foe. And the very fact that he knows he's been defeated fuels his hatred for God and for his people. It's the very fact that he knows it's futile. He, he cannot win. He has already decisively lost, yet he's full of insane rage against Christ's people. And Don Carson gave the, you know, it's pretty famous illustration from World War II. After Normandy, World War II was, was in principle, it was over. We, 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 it, it was over. At that point, there was no way Hitler could win the war. Did Hitler stop fighting after D-Day? No. In fact, if anything, it fueled his insane rage all the more. The Battle of the Bulge happened after D-Day. The, he, he, was, he, was, he knew it was over for him. He, there was no possible way he could win the victory after D-Day, and yet he, didn't, he did not stop fighting. He fought all the way to the very last moment before he ended up committing suicide, apparently, in his bunker. But, but this is the kind of rage we're seeing. Satan knows he's decisively lost. The D-Day was the cross. The war has shifted. In principle, he's defeated. No matter what he does, he's going to lose. And yet he doesn't go, oh, I'm so sorry, Lord, please help me. I I wish I hadn't done that. There's no repentance or humility at all in Satan or his demons. Instead, he's all the more wrathful, and he wants to do whatever he can to persecute us in the little time that he has left 
before his decisive and his final defeat at the return of Christ. Uh, Verse 13. Yeah, so let's look at that. It says, When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who'd given birth to the male child. Now, pause here. Yeah. Um, Obviously, he couldn't stop the male child. He failed. So it's like, well, I'm going to go after the covenant community that brought that child. I'm going to do everything I can to devour and destroy them. But look at verse 14. The woman was given two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. There's three and a half years. Um, So again, remember, uh, protection and persecution. Uh, We're seeing the protection aspect here. Says verse 15, the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Now, there's a couple of things I want to mention really quickly here. Um, Number one, verse 14, two wings of the great eagle. You remember what God said about Israel after he'd rescued them from Egypt? On eagle's wings, I bore you. Not literal eagle's wings. One person a while back, I don't think he's representative um, of the dispensational perspective I was reading, and I don't think, but went so far as to say, well, this is a massive airlift by the United States Air Force to take Israel into the desert to protect her. That's obviously not the way we need to understand this, okay? Um, one Again, we, we don't read the Old Testament with the newspaper in our hand. Right, we read it yeah. with the Old Testament in our hand. This is Again, if you're thinking that the eagle's wings, the eagle is the United States emblem, and therefore eagle's wings are the United States military, I mean, I'm sorry, you're not reading Revelation the right way. The, the Old Testament background is, is Exodus 19, verse, uh, verse 4. God says, on Mount Sinai to Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Where are they? They're in the wilderness, right? So again, the metaphor is God protects his people in the wilderness like Israel by bringing them on eagles' wings by his protection with manna and water from the rock. God is nourishing and caring for his people while they're being persecuted from, from outside. Yeah, and so um, obviously this is a, uh, it, it's an image to communicate God's ability to protect his people. He can get you where he wants you to go, and he can protect you while you're there. But then look at verse 15. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. Now, what's interesting in reading some authors that, whose opinion I would disagree with on this, they will look at verse 14 and take it very symbolically. Well, obviously, that's, that's just a symbol of God's protection, God's deliverance, but they immediately go to verse 15 and they say, well, um, this must be Satan's army at the end of time trying to come and destroy uh, you know, Israel in the wilderness, um, and God literally causes an earthquake that opens up the earth and swallows the army. And so I want to go with a more consistent hermeneutic. I want to go with a hermeneutic that I'm going to stick with no matter what I'm reading, and I think we read verse 15, and it's actually, again, remember Old Testament, Exodus chapter 15, uh, you don't have to turn there unless you just really want to. Uh, this is Moses in the Song of Moses after they, Israel has gone through the Red Sea. Uh, God has drowned the Egyptian army. He's talking about, you, you know, with the great flood, this, that, and the other. Verse 11, he says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods, who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. And then listen to what he says. Now, is Moses, we have to ask ourselves a question. Does Moses forget in the space of a few sentences how God delivered Israel? I'm going to say no, because look at what Moses says, verse 12. He says, you stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. He's talked about a flood swallowed them. 
not the earth. There's a difference between water and land. Moses understands that. He's speaking symbolically here of how God completely devoured his enemies and rescued his people. I think... Is that, that Exodus 15? Exodus 15, 11, and 12. Exodus 15 is poetry. It is a song of the deliverance. So non-literal language is used in poetry just like it's used in apocalyptic literature like yeah. Daniel and Revelation. And so I think in verse 15... We're, we're seeing a reference to that because in chapter 15, we get Exodus terminology. What are they saying? Like we mentioned in 15, the song of Moses, they're on the other side of the sea of, of fire or the sea that, that's got glass mingled with fire. They've, they've gone through the waters of judgment. They've survived. Their enemies haven't. So there's this, this Exodus uh, Im- imagery here of God delivering his people in a, in a, in a special way. Can, can I have yeah, one more ahead. thing there? So th- the water coming from the dragon's mouth, I, I think it's referring to two things. I think it's referring to persecution and false teaching. Those are the only two ways Satan can try to ruin your faith. He can either try to hit you with suffering so hard that you curse God and die like he tried to do with Job right? You bring enough suffering and persecution, eventually you'll curse God and die. You'll lose your faith. You'll apostatize, which is what he wants for all of us. He wants all of us to abandon our faith. One way he does that, the flood of water out of his mouth, one way is persecution. The other way is heresy, false teaching. If he can get you to believe what is fundamentally false about the gospel, you've also apostatized. You've also abandoned your faith. So those are his two weapons, persecution and false teaching. And to back that up, you don't have to turn there, Psalm 144, verses 7 and 8, speaks this kind of way. Listen to Psalm 144. Stretch out your hand from on high. Rescue me and deliver me from the many waters. Right? So you got flood analogy. What does the flood of waters mean in this psalm? From the hand of foreigners whose mouths speak lies, whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. So false teaching and lies is connected to being drowned in a flood in Psalm 144. That's biblical language. Similarly here in Revelation 12, persecution and false teaching are the two weapons Satan is going to use against you to try to make you abandon Christ and to turn away from the true gospel. Verse 17, um, we got to finish quickly with this. We talked about Revelation often looks at the same, uh, same reality and can use two different images at the same time, and we're not meant to try to blend those images. We're just meant to let them be what they are because we're talking about this woman and then her offspring. Okay, I I think, and I I wish we had more time to really dive into this, the woman is referring to the covenant community as a whole, Mm -hmm. and the offspring is referring to the individual members of the covenant community. Satan cannot destroy the whole church, but he can go after the members of the church. He can go after individual Christians. And that's what he's doing. And that's why it says he, he couldn't get the woman. He's angry at the woman. Verse 17, he's furious. So he went off to make war on the rest of her offspring on those who do what? Keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And so going with what Mark said earlier, and I think we'll close with this, is this is what leads into chapter 13. How does Satan make war on the rest of the woman's offspring, the faithful followers of of Jesus. It ends with, he stood on the sand of the sea, and next week we see this beast coming out of the sea that the dragon works through. And so how does he do it? Through the beast and then through the false prophet, which we'll look at next week. Turn one last thing. So let me read 17 again, the very end of verse 17. It says, or the beginning, then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. As you see, we're arguing the woman represents the covenant community and the offspring represents the individual members. If that sounds strange to you, turn to 2 John, just right before Revelation, turn to 2 John, the first verse. If you're wondering which chapter, it's just one. 
So 2 John, verse 1. And I think most people agree. I don't think this is a very controversial point here. Maybe I'm wrong, but 2 John, the first verse. The Apostle John writes this. The elder, that's himself, to the elect lady and her children. Now, do you see again a woman and her children are put right side by side? I think there's pretty strong agreement on what this is referring to. John is the elder. The elect woman is God's chosen people. The local church is the woman, personified as a woman, and the members of the church are her children. Okay, if that sounds strange, look up some study Bibles or some notes. Most people agree with that. So the elect lady is a local church, and the, the, her children are the members of the church. And that's the same thing Revelation 12 is doing. The woman represents the whole church, and the her offspring represent the individual members of the church. That's a biblical way of speaking about those things. Yeah. So, let, let, we'll wrap up right there. Uh, let me close us in prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, the, the book of Revelation really is fascinating to study, and uh, Lord, I, I thank You for telling us ahead of time that the church age is going to be a time of difficulty. There are going to be setbacks there are going to be closed doors. There are going to be false teachers are going to always be present in the church all the way up to the very end. Uh, we know that Antichrist is coming, but even now many Antichrists have come. Anyone who denies that Jesus has come in the flesh is speaking from the spirit of the Antichrist, First John says. And so, Heavenly Father, please protect us from the temptations that come when life gets really hard as we try to follow You. And the persecution and the suffering that comes, help us not to abandon uh, our, our first love. Let us not abandon the love that we have for You. And at the same time, when false teaching comes that is attractive to our flesh and our sinful nature, and might even get us to avoid persecution because we compromise on culturally uh, unpopular doctrinal issues so that we can avoid persecution at work or in, amongst our friends and family. God, help us not to be unfaithful to Your Word. Help that, that, that flood of water coming from the dragon's mouth to drown us. Help it not to reach us. But I pray that the earth, as You said, would open up and swallow it and that You would nourish us and protect us, Your true people, God, during this 1260 days, during this time, times, and half a time, during this extremely difficult time of persecution in the church age. And I pray we would be faithful to the very end, whether we are alive until the return of Christ or we are still many centuries away from that, and we are called simply to be faithful until death here in this life. Because we know those who hold fast to the Word of Christ and His testimony uh, and are faithful unto death will receive the crown of life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys.